welcome to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast which demands at every meal to consume at least five courses. We often begin with a light little spritzing, a sprinkling of vegetables, seasonal of course. Then we have a pasta course, whether it's, see I don't know pasta names, angel hair or rat, ratatouille, no ratatouille is vegetables. <laughs> I don't eat a lot of pasta, but we have a lot of it, orzo, got lots of orzo. And then, of course, we have only butter-basted meats, and we go on and on from there until we are satiated and, like, grotesquely satisfied. We don't stop at just full. We push the limits here. Mm -hmm. Isn't that right, Amanda? That is 100% right. (laughs) If you have no idea what we're talking about, that's okay. I'm referencing, of course, The Devil in the White City, the book that we'll be discussing on today's podcast. That is what we are alluding to. Joining me, as ever, on the pod is co-host Amanda. Welcome back, Amanda. Hello. When was the last time you ate a five-course meal? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I don't even know. (laughs) I have a child. I never go out. (laughs) Forever ago. (laughs) So every day then? Every day you're – would you say that your whole entire day is five – a five-course meal just spread out really slowly? I guess that doesn't count as a meal. Yeah, with the snacks and everything for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Every day a treat, every day a five course meal. Yep. I can say with confidence the last one I did was it was more family style and it was at a birthday trip to LA to see my brother and we went to a restaurant we really wanted to go to. But I don't know if we'd call it courses. It was more just we ordered a lot of things family style. I'm not sure how you'd feel about that. Oh, like tapas? Is that courses? No, it was we ordered entrees and stuff, but we just ordered so many, and they did come out at different times. But I, they weren't distinct courses. Not like in this book, how they he keeps listing off the menus and stuff. It wasn't quite like that. It was there was no planned order. It was kind of just us ordering at our whims, sort of. Ooh, I like that. At any rate, again, we were discussing all of this food because Eric Larson's "The Devil in the White City" has prompted us to do so. You've arrived at a book club episode of this podcast. We are, again, the Lightly Literary Podcast. You can find us on Instagram and on Facebook at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word. Follow our social media accounts to see some art and reminders of the books we're doing and the schedule and all that good stuff. We're up there. I think we'll be on Goodreads soon, too. Who knows? I might update that account. I might not find time. But we're definitely on Instagram and Facebook, so follow us there. Tell us us to your friends, all that good stuff. Book club episodes are where we discuss something in analytical detail and specificity. This, again, will be on the, I guess we'll call it narrative nonfiction book, The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, which I chose. Amanda, you gave me the prompt for this book, which I picked. What was the prompt? Oh, man. It was a a book that um, somebody has, uh, either a family member or a friend has recommended to you that you have not yet read. Yeah, and this is an embarrassing backlog for me. My aunt, lovely, beloved, amazing Aunt Susan. Shout-outs to you, Aunt Sue, if you're listening. I'm going to tell her about this one, so I hope she does listen. But (laughs) she's been recommending this book to me for probably a decade now. (laughs) Maybe not even exaggerating. Ever since I moved down here, um, she lives in Asheville, North Carolina. And so ever since I moved down here to the south, to North Carolina, she's been telling me I should read this book. I don't even know when this book came out. Do you know? I just looked it up. It's 2003. Okay, yeah. And so... She's been recommending it to me ever since, and I've been putting it off, mostly because I don't read a ton of nonfiction. To be fair, when she first told me about it, she called it a novel, and I was thinking, like, okay, I don't think it's a novel, but now I understand why she said that, or would say that. It's written in a very novelistic, we could say, way. Right. But yeah, and so I just, I don't know, I don't do a ton of nonfiction, but obviously for the Lightly Literary pod, we are trying to be really thoughtful, purposeful, and diverse in our selections. We don't want to... We don't want to repeat ourselves too often, and we also want to make sure we represent kind of a breadth of literary interest, and so this kind of slots right in. Yeah. Anyway, that is why I chose it. It's I've been putting it off for so long, and now is the time to dive in. Also, as we mentioned, and I'm sure we'll mention in the book review, or recommendation rather, episode, it's got murder in it, folks, and that's what you guys love. The listeners <laughs> demand murder. They demand murder plots, murder intrigue. <laughs> they want the murder shows. They want their murder podcasts, yep, and we're yep. here to pile on. We're not yeah. ashamed of following the, the popular trends, so... Mm-hmm. And ours is like for real murders, too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. True crime. True crime. Anyway, 
So that's what we're here today to discuss. We will be discussing and analyzing the first half of the work. Unfortunately, the page count on this split doesn't work out perfectly. Today, we'll be talking about part one and two. The book is labeled in four parts. So we're doing parts one and two, which is actually over half the book, if my counting was correct. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah, it's over half. So this isn't a case where we got to split the book directly in half, but we came pretty close. And we will be spoiling everything in parts one and two, so be forewarned. This is meant to be a deep dive anyway. And if you're continuing to listen, then let's dive in and not waste time. We begin part one book clubs for nonfiction, and really with anything, with surprises, pleasant or otherwise. It's kind of there in the title, but we're going to each discuss something that surprised us about the book so far. And Amanda, why don't you start us off? What is your surprise? Sure. Um, I had actually read this book uh, a couple of years ago. Um, but I was trying to remember what surprised me the most about this reading. So, um, I came into it knowing that it was nonfiction. And so what surprised me was, um, Eric Larson's ability to create a mood through his imagery. He's really great at description, um, which is, which was really surprising to me, Mm, um, for something that's nonfiction and biographical and has he, all of his sources are like primary sources and stuff. And I, it does definitely as your, your aunt had, had said, it's, it's like reading a novel in a lot of ways, which I really enjoyed. So, and that made it Mm -hmm. way more readable for me. Um, and so I, I pulled out an example actually from page 95 of just how he's sure, able sure. to create um, a sense of mood. And um, so this is like he, he talks about weather and stuff like that, but it's because he's done the research. It's not like he just willy-nilly is picking weather things. Anyway, so. Sure, sure. Um, at the park, the architects eased from the carriages, puffing blasts of steam into the frigid air. The wind picked up motes of sand that stung their cheeks and forced them to shield their eyes. They stumbled over the frozen ground, Hunt wincing from gout, cursing, disbelieving. Olmsted, his teeth inflamed, his night an ordeal of wakefulness, limping from his long-ago carriage accident. The lake was gray, darkening to a band of black at the horizon. The only color in the vicinity was the frost rouge on the men's cheeks and the blue of Burnham's and Olmsted's eyes. So this is all stuff that he has researched. He knows that, like, he knows about uh, Hunt's gout. He knows about Olmsted's various (laughs) health issues. Um, He he knew what the weather and all that stuff. It's it's really well-researched to the point where he can be descriptive like that and make it seem like it's a novel. Yes, and I... It's an intriguing combination. You pick such a great example to discuss and demonstrate it because it's often with memoirs... The the This is similar to how I think about memoirs when I read them, which is, are you putting it together in an artistic manner or how precise is this? And this is the perfect case of... Uh, who's to say if they stumbled, uh, you know, like there's certain choices within it where you think perhaps that night it happened that way and perhaps not, but because it accompanying the kind of propulsion of the description is just a bunch of facts that you know could be proven to be true. The eye color, the limp, the gout, the like the inflamed teeth, which I'm sure all that comes from diary entries or journals. These are people who, and, and we're losing this over the years, wrote a ton of correspondence. And so if you can keep that and keep those notes, those primary sources, a lot of this could be proven, of course. Right. But, you know, who's to say if the only thing you see is the red of their cheeks? That's the embellishment, but it it doesn't feel unfair given that it is sort of enveloped in fact, I guess. Right. And so, it yeah, it feels really, it enriches everything and it kind of brings out the best in the writing, or I guess this is emblematic of the best of his writing, I should say. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, every time I think it's gone too far, I also kind of pull back and think, no, but that seems fair. He's just enriching the atmosphere of this. Yeah. You know? Did you ever think any of it went too far or that he's overstepped as sort of a historian or something? Um, no, not really, because, um, his acknowledgements, his information in the back, I mean, you can look in the the back of the the book and see all of his sources, but also I, I, I think back like this scene, I'm like, okay, well, he, he's done the research on the weather, but also probably the color is fairly accurate, like the inability to see a whole lot of color, because back then it's not Mm -hmm. like they had, everything was like 
electricity right. necessarily. There were still some gas lamps and stuff like that happening. Um, and the the park, Jackson Park, at this point was a barren landscape. Right. There was nothing right. there. So it would be difficult to see. And so I think that he made, for me, like a lot of the the descriptions, I... I was like, I think that probably this is going to be pretty accurate because these are our logical conclusions based on what he understands of the environment that he's researched. Yeah, no, I think it it feels like it has a journalistic integrity to it, but also a narrative novelistic playfulness, which is very delicate. Yeah. But he does pull it off, I would say. I agree. Yeah. It's, it's enough of each. I think it leans maybe at times too much into the novelistic playfulness and the plotting of things, which I'll get into in a second, Mm -hmm. but certainly not enough to detract from the enjoyment. In fact, that is, I would say, the enjoyment. If this were a textbook or something, an encyclopedia, I don't think anyone would care about a lot of this. I mean, it would be a novelty of history, I guess, but it's in the embellishment that he, yeah, that's, that's the life of it anyway. I knew this book only from reputation, and so I knew of its its wake, I guess, because it kind of helped kickstart, in a sense, the popularity of these novelistic narratives, the, or nonfiction, this kind of like narrative nonfiction, which is sort of, in the literary world, its own sort of genre now. Mm-hmm. It, it's its own presentation of a topic, subject, or something. And so I went into it expecting, okay, he's going to spin a yarn of this, you know, it's it's going to have a plot. It'll have maybe character development in so much as it can in the real world. And despite all that, I was still pretty stunned by the needle threading that he pulls off. Now, I think some of those metaphorical needles are taking a bit too long. Um, the Pendergast Irish, the newsboy, the newsman, is a good example of how Maybe he introduced it too early by going so chronologically and sticking to the chronology for the most part, but mm-hmm. that's just something that it's clear it has to pay off. My prediction with his instability is that he's going to do kill someone maybe or hurt something or blow something, I don't know, blow something up maybe, but it's just clear that that has to pay off and maybe he, I think he's just dangling that for too long, but it's a small example. I think in the biggest grandest sense his main choice right there's the chapters about the architectural ambition the capitalists the industrialists the the mega planners the politicians the big stage and then on the small scale there's the murder the meticulous psychopath the plotting on that front those two things play really well it's like a genius big level idea and the threading of those the push and pull of them is pretty enrapturing, I think. Mm-hmm. I My attention has been, I would say, I kind of rush the architecture business stuff a bit to get back to the murder plot, so maybe I'm as guilty of the trend as anyone or whatever, the popular culture trend. But I think the interplay, its very conception is pretty genius. I'll be doubly impressed if at the end those two things come together. I mean, I know that Holmes at the fair is going to be luring, murdering, doing his horrible deeds. So I'm curious how they, those, these people maybe interact or don't. But anyway, long-winded way of saying, I think at the broadest scale, the structure of the book works way better than I thought. I, I didn't even really know it was a dual narrative per se. I kind of just knew it told a story. I thought maybe it was just going to be about the murderer. So I was surprised by that coming in. But yeah, the fact that it keeps It kind of balances the high, low, you know, the broad view with this really specific, this man on this block doing this nefarious thing. I am impressed by how well it balances that, I guess. It's so funny that you rush through the architect stuff because that's the stuff that holds my attention the most because that's Mm -hmm. um, the he has the most discussions of like the political intrigues and the the union yeah. workers and stuff like yeah. that and and I find those I think for me the most compelling as far as setting at least I guess I think it's because those parts are becoming a touch redundant some of which I enjoy for example I could read however many paragraph he paragraphs he wants to give me about Olmstead being basically a diseased cranky like (laughs) impossible impossibly impossibly unhappy like his misery is just it feels almost brutal that he keeps bringing it up it's like we get it you can stop saying that he can't sleep and he's unwell and nothing will fix his physical ailments you know yeah i just but for some reason that just i don't know it's almost charming because olmstead's such a 
cranky but lovable, dedicated kind of, you know, he's like a cranky artist type. Oh, yeah. So I but also it's like how many times do you have to hear that things go slowly? You know, oh, there's too many commits. I feel like it's a bit it circles itself a bit too much. But there are always new developments because it's such a chronological event. You know, they're either building something or not. They're either beginning a new project or not. So it's propulsive, but... I don't. I feel like after a while, I wasn't getting a ton of new insights. The in the most recent section, the bit about the unions and how the I think it was the carpenters kind of made a model for unionizing across the country yeah. or something. That was in, but that you know that was a paragraph. He just kind of offhandedly mentions that was actually a really important strike that changed some things about how unions operate and how people get you know their rights represented laborers. And so you know he doesn't dwell on that. It's more about what's it, is it Barnum or Burnham the main Burnham yeah main Mm -hmm. guy yeah but and so no I think that both sections are enjoyable enough I think that was the at least with the the murder side you're getting new people new personalities and you're kind of seeing how his schemes his schemes also become very circular because he, he clearly pulls the same tricks over and over on people financially and you know murderously but it's i guess it's because the new people each each woman in each scenario has a new kind of personality to it Mm -hmm. that maybe that's but you know it's you could make the same argument against both i suppose that they kind of they're revisiting the same sort of basic points over and over in, in a sense but yeah i could see either be appealing to different readers or something yeah, it's um. What what I also like too is like yes, it's like reading two different narratives as you pointed out, but uh, the way that he connects them, I think, is shows his uh, novelistic, <laughs> I guess, uh, side mm-hmm. where um, a lot of there's like a, a continuing motif uh, between the two narratives, which is the blue gaze, the blue eyes of both Burnham and uh, Holmes that he. He, I took note of like how many times he's mentioned it so far, and it's something like ten times already, um, in just the first half of the book of the blue gaze is what he often says. Um, so that, and also the play on the colors white and black, and the play on um, angelic imagery versus devil or demonic imagery. So mm-hmm. I think that he yeah. does a really good job with kind of like using. Um, some some figurative some literary devices there in order to to tie the two narratives together in that way as well. Certainly, yeah. No, it's it's been a pretty rich text overall, and I yeah I've been pleasantly surprised for sure at the quality of the interplay and just even again just the basic concept is uh, functioning way better than I would have assumed yeah. or predicted. You know, going into it. Let's do some Please Continue, Make It Stop. We've, I guess, alluded to some already. This is when we get into some specifics in the book, either things that are working, so please continue, or things that aren't, and that's the Make It Stop part. Do you want to start with one of yours? I pulled I pulled two continues, one stop, oh. but you can start us off with whatever. Sure. Um, I'll start off with my Please Continue. My Please Continue and my Make It Stop are like two sides of the same coin i guess <laughs> but, yeah yeah <laughs> but my uh please continue is um i love the various tidbits about historically significant inventions the political atmosphere the power struggles i love the allusions to um famous people there's like annie oakley uh, uh there's yeah he mentions disney <laughs> the disney one was an eye roll for me for oh sure. really well i just love yeah, disney definitely so i was like oh uh, it's just you know he's gonna end gosh he loves his punchy endings of paragraphs and, and chapters and sections yeah so it's just you knew he was gonna end by saying disney's name it's just like with the ferris wheel yeah you know he ends that chapter with saying and his name was ferris or something yeah i can yeah. just hear the narration which i suppose that's a clear voice it's a dramatic voice you know it's not i guess that's not bad yeah but it did i don't know i found it a little it was almost playful in an annoying way, but I, it's also, I don't know. It's not like extremely bad or something. I, I enjoyed it. And, and I think, yeah, I, I loved all the allusions to, to the people and everything. Cause it, it definitely, I don't know. I felt like I was learning quite a bit actually about that time period too, as I was yeah, yeah. reading along, which I really appreciated. Um, but the, the the foreshadowing that he does yeah you're you're right like as far as like the punchy last lines that and there's like all the foreshadowing that leads up to those lines it could be a bit heavy-handed i i suppose but it didn't well, really bother me as much 
I'll jump in with my make it stop interpretation. It's the only one I have because I, I called out the Ferris example as an exemplar of this problem. Mm-hmm. It He teased it for too long. And by that point, we had learned so much about this person's project that he kept. The thing is, he withholds to build up suspense like he could tell us straight up. That this person, because he keeps teasing things like the invention was going to be something in the air. The invention was going to hoist and required a lot of metal. Like he could have said straight away, yeah, the guy was trying to invent a big wheel really tall. Like, but he, he does withhold and then sprinkles, which is good narrative storytelling. But with nonfiction, maybe it's my own impatience or something because it and at that point. I mean, it's maybe good foreshadowing, too. But at that point, so much had been sprinkled. That you're just thinking like, yes, okay, we get it, but can we just... And then the way he finished that section with the name, it's, you know, how profound he wanted it to feel. I guess I felt more, I don't know, not exasperated by it. But at that point, I just felt that the tease had lasted for too long or something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's that's an author, I think, feeling himself a bit and being confident in the structure. And again, I wouldn't say any of that is bad. But I'm I'm glad the other sections haven't felt that way because then I think it would be tiresome. I think the rest of it is working so well that that when he brings in a new narrative like that one, it didn't make me eye roll or something. I was just kind of like, eh, maybe doing a bit too much now. But yeah, that that was just my example of like, I I think that some of the small bursts and interjections are maybe a little too coy or something. Mm-hmm. But overall, not a detraction really in any major way. So. Yeah, that makes sense. Any, um, and that was your please continue. What was your make it stop? Uh, my make it stop was I, I love all the tidbits, but the transitions leave a bit to be desired sometimes. Um, yeah, he just yeah. has so much information to share, which is great. I love, but sometimes it's like he's just dropping in a tidbit without actually contextualizing. It's just like hmm. all he does is like give those uh, paragraph breaks, the little symbols underneath, and then he like goes on to oh, a different yeah. topic, and then oh, oh yeah, there's one paragraph, and now here's another paragraph break, and here's a whole different thing. Um, mm-hmm. So my example comes from pages 169 to 170. He goes from talking about Olmsted going to Europe for his uh, vacation. Um, uh, and then he goes to uh, Sol Bloom's Algerians setting sail for America a year early. And then he goes back to Olmsted's trip in Europe. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like chop, 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 chop. It's, it, it's- it can seem sometimes really choppy. Um, right. is my point. And, and there's no transitional sentence, no transitional word or anything between those ideas. It's just, it's just the paragraph breaks and that's it. Those little, little dash marks are doing just yeoman's work here. They've got yeah. a load, a pack load on their back because yep. it's, they are frequent, you know, you can see three in a page, maybe more. Yep. And so, yeah, you really got to keep up. It's it's a similar problem, if you want to call it that. I think it's organized just fine. Yeah. Or, you know, for for a, a, an astute, not even astute, but an active, uh, alive, you know, an active reader, like someone paying any attention, I think you'll keep up okay. Yeah. But it does remind me of Janesville, where by deciding to go chrono- chronologically and having 10 points of view, it, there's just, it, you're just going to feel overwhelmed at times. It's kind of inevitable, I mm-hmm. guess. Yeah, I, the solution I think would be non chronological and group them by the people or something. But at that point, you've got a different kind of book, right. I think, right. to an That's extent. True. Yeah. So no, I think, I, but I completely agree. It's a bit whiplashy. Yeah. Cool. Any others? I have two. Please continues. No, that's it for me. So I'm going to pile on from what you started earlier. This book is just I, the word I kept thinking was dripper ooze because this book is just dripping chicago-ness now i don't know chicago super well and especially at this time period i only knew passing facts about the slaughter industry from upton sinclair or whatever you know like facts of history but he he just does not hold back he's gonna have every page ooze something and his view of chicago at this time is just seedy yeah and ramp <laughs> rampantly sinful and all that stuff and it's 
Uh, the book, he just, he allows himself, I think, every freedom. I don't know what the editor thought of this book or if they reined it in, but he just at every opportunity is going to go in on just the seediness of Chicago. I pulled only one quote, but I could have pulled a thousand for this, <laughs> but it's when Holmes, the murder, the murder psychopath, is discussing or thinking about what he liked about Chicago. And it says on 62, the city toughened women quickly, however, best to catch them at the start of their ascent towards freedom in transit from small places when they were anonymous lost their presence recorded nowhere every day he saw them stepping from trains and grip cars and hansom cabs inevitably frowning at some piece of paper that was supposed to tell them where they belonged and then at the end holmes adored chicago adored in particular how the smoke and din could envelop a woman and leave no hint that she had ever existed save perhaps a blade thin track of perfume amid the stench of dung anthracite and putrid putridification which is a if I could have read it better a really like potent ending to that sentence. Yeah. Tons to discuss and go over and admire about that, but I think imagery of it all, it's a commitment to an atmosphere of just disgust and rankness and just odorous vileness and everything. And it's you know, the way he describes the perfume trail is it's novelistic and playful. But then, you know, in the, even in the beginning of that paragraph, and he does this a lot, he does the kind of historical fact listing in a way but he mentions grip cars and handsome cabs i don't know what those are that's an example of how he kind of weaves the the research aspect into the imagery and into the mood setting in a way that's you know pretty it seems pretty effortless I, i've googled terms from this for sure there's definitely references to historical technology developments and stuff that i had didn't know existed didn't know what they were but it's just it all feels kind of effortless in his hands so i think yeah, I just keep describing Chicago in the most grandiose way you can is what I would say to continue. Yeah, yeah, I love that. the The way that he describes everything is just so, so great. I could actually like picture everything that he says, and I think that it's great that uh, it also, especially with like the description of Chicago versus uh, what the white city is supposed to represent. Yeah. yeah. I think that's such a great way to play that up is like the contrast of like where it's coming from, what they're trying to make. He even makes a statement that uh, the white city is what Chicago really wants to be, what they are aiming to be and not what they are currently perceived. And I I think that is just such a great contrast. Yeah, I just found another one. I was just flipping pages and I found another one that said there was like a raccoon's tail of smoke wisping up and at some point the snow is described probably a hundred different ways, kind of like muck and grime. I remember there was a passenger line in there about a horse, like falling up to its chest in muck and mud, and like a combination of, co- there's, yeah, there's corpses everywhere. And there's, yeah, it's like yeah. a thousand train the cars manure. Of manure all yeah. over the place. And I don't know. I mean, again, it's obviously the Chicago of, of the time, <laughs> the, the reality of it must've been pretty intense. And I think just his writing is up to it. I suppose I can't speak to the, historic uh qualification historical mm-hmm. qualifications of this work and the research whatever i've glanced at the back at a couple of the sourcing just to just because i was curious mostly he knows so much intimate facts about these men that i just wanted to make sure that there was a ton of correspondence he he found which does seem to be the case again just a you know a signifier of a 20th century life or uh i guess in this case late 19th century life just people just recorded a lot more back then i don't think people are going to save our emails in the same way maybe google will or something or facebook definitely will (laughs) i know i know facebook is doing it for better or worse but anyway it's all in the cloud yeah that's yeah it just it all comes through in in really uh in the in the heinous (laughs) beauty that i think chicago had going for it the other really quick please continue i'll mention I want all the Olmstead quotes, man. I want them all. I don't. I just think I don't know why he's such a hilarious figure to me. He's not even that cranky or crotchety <laughs> or something, but it's just that his work is being cast aside in favor of these monolithic behemoth steel things, and he's just trying to you know make the landscapes pretty and all that. Which I guess even in my tone and suggestion there, I downplayed the artistry of his work. So yeah. I guess I'm part of the problem. But I don't know. Every appearance, I don't mind that it's repetitive. Every time he describes his sleeplessness and tooth problems, I don't know. I just, I don't know why I'm so charmed by it. I think there's a part in 170. I did pull a quote from him where he, he does quote <laughs> Olmsted an awful lot. Olmsted, another person who clearly he has like access to a journal of his or something. Cause he has 
about a thousand quotes from Olmsted saying varieties a variety of things. Yeah. He says that um, he, d- he describes the Paris fair and he says that we have much more color and ornament and color, but much less or Paris does, but much less in molding and sculpture than I had supposed. They show, I think, more fitness for their purposes, seem more designed for the occasion and to be less like grand permanent architectural monuments than ours are to be. I question if ours are not at fault in this respect and if they're not going to look too assuming of architectural stateliness and to be over bonded with sculptural and other efforts for grandeur, grandeur and grand eloquent pomp. It's, you know, he obviously speaks in the mode of the time and is educated and everything. And he's an artistic genius of a sort. So his, his thoughts are lofty, but you know, I just think that I like when he throws that kind of shade. I like his analytical thoughts. All of these men are portrayed, if not favorably, they all, I don't think he casts any of them as non geniuses, if that makes sense. I don't know if you felt that way. I think he's, and again, I don't know anything about the men, so I can't Mm -hmm. evaluate what he did his project but it does seem to be celebrating them pretty broadly across the board or am i missing his reading on anybody do you think yeah no i i I think that it's pretty positive um for all the anybody who's involved in it except maybe ulrich but even then but Larson himself is yes. not saying anything bad about yes, Ulrich. Right. That's yeah, just Olmsted. His like, takes the the paint into person <laughs> or the color manager because yes, because Burnham immediately cast him aside. I guess that person. Mill- Millet. But it was also another case of it seemed like that person had solid ideas, yeah. and Burnham was just fed up with having to get approval on another thing. He just wanted to seemingly just make a decision. And I think the quote from Burnham on that was the room at the same time had the same revelation, which is always a funny way for a domineering person to think they have an agreement or, and they just had an idea. Or so, you know, it's like, oh, we all subconsciously, we all thought that, right? Okay, we're good. Yeah. Anyway, so that was a funny, <laughs> yeah, that was a funny little quote from him. So yeah, yeah I would say yeah. please continue. We're going to do what I want. Okay, nice. for me. <laughs> Don't know why I'm so charmed by it, but I am. Okay, let's move to the final part of the first book club on this book we're going to end with cocktail party quotes which is the most i guess in-depth part of the pod we each brought some quotes that we think are worthy of discussion and perhaps in a social setting essentially topics or passages that we thought warranted further discussion or intrigue just things that have really gripped us in the book so far and so we've got quotes pulled for this amanda why don't you start us off with one of your party quotes here sure um i chose a quote from page 50 Uh, Throughout his Mm -hmm. career, Olmsted had struggled with little success to dispel the perception that landscape architecture was simply an ambitious sort of gardening and to have his field recognized instead as a distinct branch of the fine arts, full sister to painting, sculpture, and -and brick-and-mortar architecture. Mm -hmm. I chose that one because, like you, I I just found Olmsted fascinating. Um, I mean, he designed and put together Central Park, like, amazing right even now it's still like this giant forest of like serenity aside from the crime that goes on in it um Mm -hmm. it's it's really nice and and i totally understand his struggle his artistic struggle with people just like brushing aside like that's not a real art form you're just a gardener or whatever this is the most important part and he struggles with that throughout this (laughs) this book here um even Mm -hmm. though burnham like says in some of his letters to his wife and to his um, colleagues about how Olmsted is like amazing and how he's got such a great vision for um, the fair at the same time. He's like, but we need to get my stuff done first. (laughs) And (laughs) I just find it really interesting. And and, um, I think it's interesting from an artistic point of view as well. And I I like that he's kind of fighting against forces that are so he's like fighting a hurricane or something because yeah even to get these structures in place they have to just destroy everything he's supposed to make just to even logistically make it happen they have to build roads and bring in train cars and all that they have to just destroy the landscape so he is kind of this i don't know if it's like sisyphusian or something but he has kind of this impossible maybe thankless task i'm at least it seems like everyone respects him but they just kind of push him aside because they have to logistically he just right it just doesn't matter because we can't build this unless we can put a thousand train cars here or whatever and so right <laughs> yeah maybe it is that fact that he's kind of fighting against 
seemingly impossible odds that makes endears him to me or i think you nailed it the passage is perfect it's it's that you know his analysis and his thoughtfulness seems to come through but it's not enough to endear i don't know there enough respect or to give him the resources or whatever though he, he does right all the people in this book i'm about to give my quote for thought and this is a, a kind of segue to it the spending on this is just outrageous to me it's egregious right? i mean this is like reeks of gilded age excess and like absurdism or something it makes no sense that the things they buy he buys these foreign birds he bought like two hundred thousand trees or something it all just doesn't make any sense i don't understand <laughs> yeah and and in the midst of of um international banks failing as yeah, well yeah yeah when they translate some of the fees and fines and everything into, because he often does that, he'll put it into current, you know, translate it for what's it, inflation and, you know, update the currency. Right. And yeah, you just see some of those, some of their basic consulting fees. It was like, oh, it was $300,000 to come out for a day. It's okay. I mean, yeah. I know, I understand that that's also <laughs> probably, there's some expert somewhere in some field that could command a fee like that today or whatever, I'm sure what, you know, something. But just to see it so egregiously thrown around and they just seemingly on whims, like, yeah, this guy, we kind of want this guy. Let's offer him $300,000 to come out for a day and see if he'll agree to work with us or something. Yeah. I don't know. Versus how much they paid the female architect. Oh, right? yeah. That was, well, that was a pair. That's us. Awesome. Yeah. That is a topic that I don't know if that's its own book or something, but he doesn't spend a ton of time on that. There was a couple pages on the the kind of quarreling about how it should be decorated. Do you remember that part? Yeah. yeah. She had a nervous breakdown from right, it. Right, about how there were different interpretations. So I feel like more on that would be, I guess, you know, in fitting, uh, in a fitting comparison or similarity to the architectural design of the fair itself, she is getting comparatively little space in the book just like at the fair. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's, yeah. yeah, I guess that's just how it is. Yeah. More on that would be good. Anyway, let me jump back to the money that I was trying to segue earlier and failed to do so. I'm just running all over, <laughs> but I do have a thought on this. I think one quote or one aspect of it that it would have to be discussed. Holmes money schemes, this man, I, you know what? I never thought in my entire life, given my beliefs and the things I've researched and understood that I could even have like a shred of empathy, sympathy for creditors or believe that that's a noble, you know, line of work or whatever. But I, th this man is making me believe in credit scores, which I did not think possible. <laughs> I, this is like the schemes he's running. And I get that, you know, there's always financial fraud in a lot of different ways and et cetera, et cetera. There's institutions to help check and prevent that, all that stuff. But the way this man gets out of things, the amount of money he generates and then fakes and steals, the insurance policies he's pulling on every human being he meets. I'm sure every yeah. person he encountered in the street, he had a life insurance policy on. It's all just outrageous. And I don't know how many more examples of it I can read in this book. I'm sure there will be more. But at some point, it says, um, somebody comes to collect his bill it says on 72, Holmes sets up the drinks, took this man to supper, bought him a cigar, and sent the man off laughing at a joke with a promise to call the next week for his money. In 30 minutes after he took his car, Holmes had wagons in front, loading up the furniture that the dealer never got a cent. Holmes didn't go to jail either. He was the only man in the United States that could do what he did. And then it says later, Holmes had money to pay his debts. Davis estimated that Holmes made $200,000 through his drugstore and other business ventures, most of which were fraudulent you know, anyway. He attempted, for example, to sell investors a machine that turned water into natural gas, which is what the fuck. I mean, that's, I guess science just wasn't what it you know, is today or something. He, he secretly connected his prototype to city gas lines. So he's just scheming everybody doing whatever. He was charming and cordial and then... You know, anyway, it goes on and on. It's on every page. Basically, he's scheming someone. But this charming man's just affront to all societal notions and boundaries. I mean, it's true psychopathy, right? This is just mm -hmm. in every quadrant of this man's brain. It's his relationships to business people, to sexual and romantic partners, to his neighbors. To it's there's no no one's left untouched. But I don't know. I just had to comment on the money aspect just because of its frequency and absurdity. And again, I never thought in my life I would think, man, I have sympathy for the creditors. But, you know, don't allow yourself to be bought off with a dinner and a cigar, people. I don't know. Were they just, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, were they just like, I, I don't know. I have so many thoughts on this, but, but yeah. What do you think? Any thoughts on his money schemes? 
Yeah, they they also. I was like, that would never happen nowadays. Ugh, I would assume, yeah. but like back then, it makes sense because you know they they still believed in the idea of like a gentleman's honor and stuff like that. But yeah, man, it, just reading about some of the stuff he was pulling, I was like, really? Like, how is he duping all these like mini right in the the most recent yes. woman yeah. that he's he's duping to get all of her property and money? Is he that attractive? Really? <laughs> I don't know. I think it could just be, yeah, signs of the times, the the way the people were presented and the the kind of courtship of it all, the cultural expectations around that kind of thing, people expecting to be, the whole idea of being whisked away. I, I don't know. There's probably so much to unpack there, just culturally. Yeah. Even, but it, it all does feel just a touch absurd, but that's, I guess, how you know it's real life because to have made this up would seem kind of silly or something that there's yeah. too much going on it it does remind me the anecdote i was going to say earlier i'll say briefly now but it reminds me a touch of my grandfather who's since passed but when he was around he just had a different view of human sales interaction and his he just had kind of a preference for being persuaded in person and kind of having that human touch of i want you to sell me this refrigerator instead of you know, our generation maybe or people in with my brain. I don't ever want a human to sell me anything. I want to go to a third party reviewer and have them break down the features, analyze the thing, tell me all about it, and then not give it a review score or something. But like, I want a, per- a third party professional just to tell me, just analyze stuff and tell me the best one. It's just a completely right. different view of sales, of business, of how you compete and like earn people's I don't know like trust and it just it kind of reminds me of him in that way it's not the same thing but there was just he had that my grandfather had that streak in him of the handshake deal you know the the interpersonal connection to push something beyond anyway and it's um never thought I'd be comparing my grandfather to a true psychopathic mass murderer guy (laughs) serial killer because on any other account, they have absolutely nothing in common. He was the most yeah. gracious, wonderful man I've known. So, <laughs> um, so anyway, but it just there's something about this culturally that did remind me of just interactions we shared and kind of our different mindsets around those kinds of things. So yeah, it's strange to read about. Yeah, handshake can get a lot done, I guess. Get you millions of dollars of credit, or he bought a city block off credit and fake claim. Imagine trying to buy a city block. <laughs> In any U.S. city now, off of what? <laughs> Nothing? Fake claims Nothing. and fake paperwork? Yeah. Oh, my God, man. Your credit score, you'd never, your credit score would be a negative number. He wouldn't even, he wouldn't <laughs> even exist in our world because his FICO credit score would be like through the ground and no one would ever speak to him. No one would ever even talk to <laughs> yeah. this man, <laughs> which I guess, you know, would maybe accelerate his other tendencies. Maybe that would have made him worse or something. But anyway, so... Any, um, what, what other cocktail party quotes you got? <laughs> sure. Um, I actually did pull a quote about, about the, the female, the lone female architect. Um, mm-hmm. this is from page 120. Um, but he, Burnham, did make progress. For example, he directed a contest to choose a female architect to design the woman's building for the fair. So I chose that quote because women in this, uh, collection, they're, they're present for sure as like victims to homes and um also as like kind of petty backstabbing power hungry within their own groups kind of in the architectural sections because with uh the actual female architect um she won the competition she got paid what the the male architects got the equivalent of like what 300,000 or something like that yeah, right a and, lot. Yeah. yeah and so and her equivalent was something like uh, what was it like $10,000 yeah it was i mean this isn't even a glass ceiling that's like a concrete ceiling yeah that's just a, yeah that yeah it's ridiculous so i was like okay so, and, and i thought it was funny too that he did make progress here playing on the word progress as in like social progress mm-hmm. yeah. um but also when he was describing how like how she came to have a nervous breakdown it was because the other women um the the higher elite women 
in Chicago wanted to be the decorators, but she thought that she right. should be the decorator. Right. And so they shunned her and kind of like nitpicked her and all this stuff and, and caused her to have the mental breakdown. And then Burnham was like, he just called um, like a doctor and was like, hey, you need to take her out of my office. She's losing it. And yeah, I'm going to appoint yeah. somebody else to do it. <laughs> it was a tough <laughs> to, few pages. To be the decorator. <laughs> it was a tough few pages to be sure. I, Yeah, I don't know what to do with it. I mean, you have to, I admire the page count space he's giving to the women's hall, which was also, you know, constructed first and seemingly competently, you know, like. It seems, yeah, it was, the, it was the first one finished. Exactly. So it's, you know, I think he's trying to give it as much credit it can have. With all, also within the space of these just titanic men doing crazier shit, which is that's just on the passage of history and the organization of the world and society at the time, or or however you want to phrase it. But those pages were tough because it's it was definitely the most word count in the architecture half of the book that women had really gotten, and of course yeah. it was yeah petty social infighting and then a mental breakdown for melancholia and it was just like oh i guess i mean i don't i don't know what to do with it do you give it more page count do you cut it i don't i what else could have been done i suppose i don't know i it did it did irk me when i read it and then but he included enough of the economic realities i maybe he could spend more time on that in inequality or something but i don't know what are are your thoughts on what to be done with it I, I understood, like, from what I gathered from it, like, yeah, the, all the, the male architects were, like, jeering, like, haha, like, why even choose it? She can't even, like, handle the job, and she finished her building first, right? Yeah. But I, I was looking for more of, actually, her voice as well. All these architects, yeah, like yeah. Hunt, they have... Uh, he's done a lot of research on them. The, we don't get a whole lot about... I don't even remember her name, because her name right. has come up twice. Yeah. Twice. That's it. And and we don't actually get her voice on anything. So I don't know whether she didn't write anything or like nobody kept her stuff. But mm. I feel like she must have, I'm sure, corresponded with somebody because she wasn't even from Chicago from what I remember. So Boston, I don't know. I, I, I wanted to see more of her actual like voice as a person yep. because we get to see all these other architects um, as people so. I think you nailed it. Actually, that's it. That's the solution in part. I don't know if that solution exists, but that would. Yeah, we need, you know, a few paragraphs of her actual first person account insights and such. Again, I don't know yeah. if that those documents exist, but that's. I think you yeah. nailed it. I was the other point I was going to throw out. Throw out is that he is fully investigative, humanizing, and thorough in the murder half. the The women yeah. Holmes is courting and then killing. He does deliver, I think, on their the fullness of their lives, what happened to them, how they ended up in this scenario. I, you know, again, at times maybe he paints in quick brushes with how Holmes seduces them and all of that stuff. But I think overall, the women in that section, despite I guess the whole premise of it being that they're vulnerable and eventually killed, uh, but like b- between those things, I suppose it feels like he's doing the justice to their stories. So I guess that mm-hmm. would be the, I-, I suppose my thought is this, where he has probably the leeway in historical documentation, he is being thorough, but man, the, the architecture half is, yeah, hyper-masculine. It's super turn-of-the-century industrialist nonsense. It's cigar rooms yeah. and 10-course veal meals or whatever. It's, yeah, it's all that Gilded Age shit. <laughs> yeah, and she was not allowed to go to those dinners either. Right. He, he specifically makes a point of saying, like, there yeah. were no women there. Yeah, men's clubs. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think ultimately in these good questions is just lies maybe a different book or something, but that section was a little irksome. It was, it was annoying yeah. to get to the most detailed part of their involvement and then just have it be social quarreling over decor and then a melancholia diagnosis. It's right. just a, yeah, it, it just did feel a little bit off, but Hey, the murder victims, what about them? Anyway? <laughs> Yay. Um, all right. couple, I'm also going to mention Holmes again, real quick, just for my other one, other quote on him. Um, his entrepreneurship is also to me ludicrous. And I don't think, <laughs> the 21st century has any room for this man. I don't know what he would be doing today or who he would be doing it to or how, but the number of lies and switches and just 
kind of entrepreneurial things he has going on. I'm not going to read too much from this quote because it is about the uh, of one of his victims and what he did to her. But he ends up finding a person to to sell it to, to sell the remains of the corpse to. And it says, soon afterward on 151, Chapel returned with the skeleton. Holmes thanked him, paid him, and promptly sold the skeleton to Han Men Medical College, the Chicago school, not the Philadelphia school of the same name, for many times the amount he had paid Chapel. He really does... Gosh, I'm trying not to be crude here. At least these people are long since passed. But he really does use all the parts. It's just he's not very wasteful, I guess. It's mm-hmm. again, it's absurd in its precision and horrifying in its scope. But it's also just the thing that jumped out the most is this. Again, his entire life is touched by this psychopathy. It's just a really. I again, I don't consume a lot of the you know murder murder content and the internet these days. I've I've engaged with some. But the profile of this person, and I guess he wrote a memoir, right? A lot of things come from this memoir. So yes. somebody either mm-hmm. allowed him to or he did it himself or whatever that project was. But I guess it's just affording a, a kind of a richer sense of this person's, you know, depravities and everything. But yeah, anyway, I'm not even sure I've had anything to add on. I just every time he pulls some new scheme like that or devises some new horrific tactic, it takes me by surprise or, you know, I'm more invested to see just how far he'll go i'm now hyper intrigued as to what will end this if anything i don't know i mean Mm -hmm. we know he told people about this and he admitted to murdering maybe he'll get caught maybe he'll just die and write his memoir i truly i don't know i don't know anything about this person's case but the his entrepreneurship has really stood out to me at all the instances of it (laughs) yeah you would think that from all the business ventures. I mean, he was successful in a lot of, I mean, yeah, he was like scheming and stuff, but I don't know. He would just be some kind of, he would, he would run like a shady rental furniture store or something in the, in today's Mm -hmm. society perhaps. And, and like everything would be like half broken or like not even like Mm -hmm. made of the materials that he has listed on there or whatever. Like, I feel like, Yeah kind of fell off the truck <laughs> there was a pretty yeah. recent case of a um, now infamous case of a doctor i think in florida maybe arizona who completely faked their credentials and ended up getting <gasps> hundreds of patients or you know some really high alarmingly high number over the years and that there was that all came tumbling down i don't remember the details of this at all but i you know I can't say that our world is so pristine now that we have mechanisms in place, institutions to prevent these things. That seems like easy to say. And so I guess I'm not trying to condemn societally what was happening or some broad sweeping thing, but it just, the preposterousness of some of it has really struck me. It does. It makes for a hell of a story. You know, it just does. It's, (laughs) It's got such weird dramatic turns and yeah, it just at every turn, I think has come up with something new to maybe surprise me. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that case, yeah. the doctor or something, some kind of fraud? No, like I have no idea about that. It was pretty extensive, and I think part of it was that, I think, I'm really speaking off the cuff, but I think this person wasn't even technically aged enough to have done, like, even if they would have done medical school, they were, like, 22. You know, it's like, you mathematically, that's basically impossible. <laughs> you almost, like, have to, unless you graduate high school when you're, like, 13 or something. But, yeah, so yeah. It's, it was something absurd like that. Like, this person to my memory, couldn't even have mathematically pulled this off. And yet they were seeing a lot of patients and misdiagnosing, doing horrible things. Anyway, that's, Oh yeah. my God. So anyway, still, yeah, we're, we're not so pristine today, but the, the, the breadth of it all in this book, it's, I don't know. I'm still struck by it all. I don't, I, I'm really quite intrigued to see how the fair amplifies this man's horrific, uh, nightmarish life and things he's doing. Like, I don't even, I don't even want to predict what could happen at the fair that would make this more surprising or something or more gruesome. I don't. Yeah. But I guess we'll find out. <laughs> I haven't read anywhere past two. So any final quotes? Yeah, well, he's, oh, uh, yeah, go ahead. he's got the hotel and now there's going to be a whole yeah. lot of people and a coming kiln, through that kiln built for the morgue, yep. which is always promising. Yep. Always a thing your business, your pharmacy building should have. <laughs> yep. <laughs> at slash hotel or whatever, you know, specially installed oven. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any final quotes here to discuss? Uh, yeah, I've got one more, and it comes from page one twenty-one. Mm-hmm. 
Um, union leaders threatened to organize unions worldwide to oppose the fair. The Inland Architect, a prominent Chicago journal, reported that un-American institution, the trades union, has developed its un-American principle of curtailing or abolishing the personal freedom of the individual in a new direction, that of seeking, as far as possible, to cripple the world's fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I chose this one because... Um, it was I, I've I've been drawing a lot of um, comparisons in my mind between this book and Janesville, um, mm-hmm. the book about Janesville, because um, they're both nonfiction books that I have really enjoyed reading because yeah. of the narrative style of the writers. Um, and so this in particular made me think of Janesville because of in Janesville as well. There's that whole there's a whole lot of discussion about. Um, unions, uh, several of the people involved um, in in the the story that she's telling as well that Goldstein was telling, um, mm-hmm. are union were I suppose union members. Um, so the the importance of unions in in that book, and then like the villainizing of of unions, not by the author, not by Eric Larson himself, but by the sources that he's collecting from that time. Right, I find right. that really interesting. And I think, uh, to my memory of history, broad sweeping decades, chunking, I don't think unions had a profound power or grip quite yet in the 1890s. I think that was a little deeper into the 1900s, but I don't know. My memory on that is fading a bit. But anyway, yeah, it's, I, I think... Do you think Larson's coming down on a side, quote unquote, as much as that can be a valid reading or an interpretation? Do you find that in the book at all? I don't I don't really get that sense. So like he presents, I think, both sides of it where he's presenting us like these are quotes from an actual newspaper from the time where, of course, it's going to be more negative because this is a new thing. And they're looking at it as as not something to help with with the progress of the building but the people who are writing these are also not blue collar workers and don't know what the conditions are actually mm-hmm. like. Yeah. Right. This is also the time of um, Upton Sinclair and stuff as well. So, but then like later he makes the comment about um, when Burnham finally gives in and agrees to minimum wages and stuff like that and how yeah. it's a triumph and it's like, it sets up the tone for, um, unionizing across the nation but that one i thought was more of a positive yeah like addendum to that so i i don't it's hard for me to say whether he actually expresses an opinion right i'll i'll offer um, up a a couple of inferential ones just based on the way he organizes and the things he chooses to include a couple quick ones describes a lot of worker deaths but never really goes into it it's more it's so factual and fast there's at one point just listed skull crush skull crush electrocution do you really get a sense of the conditions i get a sense of the imagery right i can picture the location i the actual day-to-day of the laborers the thing is the scope of this book as it befits the fair, I think in the descriptions and presentation, it all is the grandiose. It's all high level. It's all Burnham level. You know, this is a, Mm -hmm. this is a type of architectural genius, a mastermind, a person above it all, a godlike inventor, industrialist, whatever. And so it's often just big numbers. You know, there's 10,000 workers right now. We had to bring in 10,000 train cars. We had to bring in, you know, there's a thousand tons of dung that we spread and it, All of it feels like in that kind of scope, which is, I guess, even if you want to be really literate, like an architectural scope in a sense. So it's reflective in that way. But Mm -hmm. there are moments here that a let me slide on my my Marxist cap or whatever, that if you had a different focus for this would be much more intriguing. And I think dwelled upon, for example, to build the manufacturer, the big structure, the biggest one that collapsed or whatever at some point. They describe, he describes a very intriguing moment when to get off the roof, they kind of snake down the side like ants. They have to pack in a tight little line and he describes them as like ants descending from afar. You know, it looks like, but I, he could spend time on the technicalities of that. What were they, how did they do that? What, what was the scaffolding system like? Or, you know, there, there could be details of labor here, but it's often, 
it's just details of a bigger, broader picture, which right. it's just a choice in the in the scope and presentation, I think. And you, and he's clearly so intrigued by the the heads of this operation, the Barnum and the others, that I, I get what the project is here. I don't I don't think I hold up too harsh a criticism to it because I think it is achieving its goal well. And I don't find it, despite my own proclivities maybe i don't find it offensive in its portrayals or anything and i don't even think it's particularly anti-union like you assess too it does have a focus though and i think it yeah and i fittingly enough it's above the clouds where barnum was living you know that's how i come down on it anyway yeah any other thoughts on that um no cool one final thought for me then and we'll end this one almost on the hour mark final quote or just real quick discussion that I appreciated from, I think it's 222. I'm pulling it up quick. I like that they focus on this other fairground, the kind of competitor in a way that got started Uh, early and actually started earning money. There's the theater group with the, where where do they come from? They said pygmies or something. It's people from, where did they get these people from? They imported, if you want to say it that way, it's a weird verb, but they brought in people from just cultures across the globe, I guess. But at any rate, there's the, I pulled one from the Buffalo Bill because it says his show in camp on 222, his show in camp covered 15 acres. It's hundreds of Indians, soldiers and workers slept in tents. Annie Oakley always made hers very homey with a garden outside of primrose, geranium and hollyhock. Inside, she placed her couch, cougar skins, and an axe minister carpet, rocking chairs and assorted other artifacts of domestic life. And of course... A diverse collection of guns and then you know it talks about bill's infidelity and some other things about the show i just of all the asides i thought this one was the best because the scope of this is epic in the in the kind of classical sense of just above and above the clouds i'll reiterate that metaphor and it's just you know you're thinking about these big things big plans i just like that at some point they showed people having fun making a fair happen and mm-hmm. I think we're about to get some of that, too, because the fair can begin now that they've planned it all in parts one and two and made it kind of. So I'm intrigued to see what kind of things happen there and what things people enjoyed or didn't. And then there's the murder stuff. So I guess maybe they didn't enjoy much. But at any rate, I when that came in, I just thought I enjoyed that one. We actually got a sense of some of the action of it, some of the entertainment, what was happening, what kinds of things people liked and were attracted to and what was noteworthy. And I guess I also just enjoyed that it gave some time to these kind of minor people, maybe quote-unquote minor, outside of the the total focus of the book. And yeah, it just made for a nice little flavor, and I appreciated that perspective. And I think um, Olmstead would have appreciated it too, because in his letter to, one of his letters to his son, I believe, he was saying that he was afraid that these people, the, the architects in particular, would forget that this is supposed to be a fair, Great. which means it's supposed yeah. to be fun. Great quote. Yeah. hundred percent. So yeah. And, and I, I also enjoyed that too. And I thought it was funny, like the, the belly dancers, like how everybody mm-hmm. was just absolutely fascinated by the belly dancers. Yep. Yeah. That little history <laughs> note about the, they made up that really infamous now infamous song from the, you know, the quote unquote middle East or the East or whatever. That's now, is that, I didn't look up what that song was though. He put the music bars uh, in. Is it the, di- yeah. Did you, you, did, you play bass. So you should have been able to read the musical notes there, but oh, it's gosh. the, I just assumed. I mean, I didn't even, I literally didn't even have to know. As soon as he said it for like the rest of the century was known for this, it's like the stereotypical, you know, the quote unquote East song. I immediately knew what that was. I didn't even look it up. I just knew, which provides the sad but true commentary on it all, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I love that too. Yeah. Yeah, that I think the introduction of that side fair, if you want to call it that, the addendum, you know, portion, whatever. It just, yeah, it, I felt like that was some extra color that worked. Did I misread something? Let's go over this one last point because it's bother, been bothering me. Did I misread something at the beginning or forget something? Or do we not yet know what this Pendergast guy is going to do? Do you know why he's here? I mean, I know you've read this book. I guess don't spoil it, quote unquote, if you know. But did did the beginning of the book say, and I just forgot... Um, the beginning of the book just said that he was a madman um, yeah. who would uh, do something to affect okay. um, history that would of be course. important. 
Yeah. To that and, particular history, yeah. And given Larson's other styles, the Eiffel Tower, the Ferris wheel being an example, I'd be surprised if he had said it by now. He loves a, you know, he loves the slow sprinkle trail. So I yeah. I've assumed I I shouldn't have known, but it's the one thing that is kind of vexed me. I'm just every time it goes to him, I just think maybe this will progress more, and it just doesn't. He's just an unstable man who's obsessed with the politician and I, anyway, I yeah, anyway, I just wanted to make sure I hadn't like deeply missed something or anything. No, 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 no. <laughs> Any final thoughts on The Devil in the White City first half or first two parts? Uh, nope, I'm good. Excellent. Okay, well, let's conclude by doing a brief refresher. We are, again, the Lightly Literary Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at that handle, all one word. We have the next part of this book club coming up, obviously, next week, Friday. We always put book clubs out. That's every Friday. And part two will be coming next Friday, so come back and check us out for that one. If you also want to know about the books we have coming up in order, let's tell you about them. Uh, Amanda, do you want to set them up? I've never made you do this part. I'm going to make you yeah, do it Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, next, we will have Wild in America. That's Wild as in W-I-L-D-E, Oscar Wilde, by David M. Friedman. There's um, Tracks by Luis Erdrich mm-hmm. and Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom. And that one is by Thomas E. Ricks. Yeah, I'd say we're on a bit of a nonfiction streak. I guess Tracks is a novel, but you know, that's a three to one nonfiction to fiction ratio. Good grief. <laughs> Who have, we beca- have we become our parents? Oh, gosh. <laughs> to be fair, my mom does. That's actually, I was just being stereotypical. My mom doesn't read that much nonfiction. I think. She still prefers fiction herself. So, yeah. If we were to read just a bunch of like Christian devotionals and stuff, then I, then ah. I would be like, I have turned into my mother. On another <laughs> pod, I don't remember which episode we did declare that we're not going to do Bible study. So if you're if yeah. you've been listening and hoping, waiting for the Bible study episode, I, you know, there's got to be other <laughs> podcasts that can service your needs. I think yeah. it is not our show, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Any other final thoughts on this one, Amanda? Uh, nope, I'm good. Okay. Well, as I said, we'll be back next week for part two on The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. Thanks, as always, for listening. And as always, we will see you between the pages. 